listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. So I also wanted to just personally say that if you are not a part of a life group, I would strongly encourage you guys to, uh, to check out the, the table out there and look at what life group might be close to you, what life group you might be able to be a part of. My family saw the benefit of that in a tangible way this week uh, as not myself, but everyone else in my family was laid up with the flu for about a week. Uh, and I don't know if they had it worse or I had it worse because of that. I'm not sure which one it was. My wife says they had it worse. Um, but our live group went out of their way to be there for us, to pray for us, to bring us food. Um, I think literally they sent, called, they did an order at Kroger and had it sent out there so that um, you know anything that Emily and the kids needed, they took care of. And what a blessing that was to us this week. Um, that's, a, that's the kind of just tangible things that they'll do for you uh, if you're a part of that. So just sign up for it for the benefits, if nothing else. No, I'm just joking. Uh, but the... Uh, but the, the fact that you have people who love you and care about you enough to be there for you, uh, it's just an incredible thing. And so uh, just a, a person I want to thank our life group for the, the way that they helped us this week and encourage you, uh, if you haven't signed up to be a part of one, to be a part of a life group. All right, so today, Daniel chapter 4. I want to thank Keith for reading that, again, kind of long passage um, for us today. And uh, I'm excited to talk about this passage this week, but I'm also to be honest, kind of nervous to talk about it because this is one of those sermons that just really challenged me, convicted me uh, deeply as I was looking at these passages of Scripture throughout the week. Um, and so as I was thinking about this, it seems like pretty evident at first that this is a, a passage that is about, uh, is about pride. It's a, it's a passage about pride. But even more specifically, um, this story is about a specific kind of pride called hubris. Okay, so hubris is a character trait um, in which somebody has excessive pride and self-confidence, especially in the way that they disregard God or disregard the gods, if you're a Greek philosopher who's writing about hubris, um, and is brought low and humbled by God. Some examples of this that are contemporary and, and kind of in the same context for, for Daniel Aesop's fables are some famous stories about hubris. He actually lived at the same time as Daniel. They were contemporaries. Um, so Aesop was, was from Turkey collecting stories around the Middle East, and many of those stories were focused on kind of bring, being humiliated and brought low in pride. You think about something like the tortoise and the hare or something like that. The Greeks were specifically concerned with that hubris element in that it was people who were sort of thumbing their nose at the gods, um, so you, you might have heard of uh, some of the myths like uh, the story of Icarus or the story of, of Narcissus and the, where the word narcissism comes from. And these people who were so full of themselves or so prideful or so, uh, so you know, had so self-fulfilled uh, that they uh, spite the gods and they bring down this anger of the gods kind of on themselves. Even uh, Assyria had where uh, this story takes place had similar stories as you can find in the literature. There's actually a story very similar to the story of Nebuchadnezzar where one of their kings 
kind of, uh, it could have been a corruption of this story, or it could have been just their interpretation or spin on this story, um, where they have very similar, a, God who, a guy who's just kind of thinks he's better than their God, and he ends up living like an animal for several years, um, very much like the one that we see in this story. Uh, all the way up through literature like Macbeth or uh, Ahab and Moby Dick, you see people who have this incredible hubris thumbing their nose at the gods. But as I was looking kind of for more contemporary examples, uh, what I found is that there's not really in literature and movies like there's not there's definitely some examples of people who have pride and kind of suffer because of their pride. But we don't really have anything in the in the in recent years where somebody has this kind of hubris where they're uh, they're brought low because of their disregard for God or even the gods. Uh, and as I started to think about why that might be, I really believe that this is because hubris is so deeply woven into who we are as people that it's just a part of our culture now that we don't even necessarily see. So this idea that we human beings don't really need God, that we are our own kind of little gods is such an important part, of, of an essential part of our culture that it's not even really that, that obvious to, to put into a movie that there would be any kind of disagreement with that sort of idea. We're kind of past this fear of God or the gods and our culture as a whole. And at first it starts to make me think like, oh man, this, uh, this wicked culture that we live in. But as God does, he then brings this back to me and says, well, you know, no, what does this mean for you? What, what kind of hubris do you have? And this is where it starts to grow and kind of conviction as you look at yourself in the mirror. And don't just say, well, it's the people out there, but instead it's my own heart. Because I feel like a lot of times as Christians living in a culture that has no regard for God, it becomes easy to think like, well, if I just kind of pay lip service to this, if I just kind of acknowledge that God exists, then, then I'm doing my part. Then, then I'm doing better than the world around me or the culture around me. But we have to remember that we're not judged by the standard of the world around us. That because we live in a culture that has absolutely no regard, if we have sort of a, like a minimal regard for God, that, that we're somehow, that's all, that's all that's necessary, that that's all that's required. And so that's the context that I want us to approach this passage of Scripture today. Not so much just looking at it in some of the different ways that you could as, as like an indictment on government, you know, an indictment on the rulers of our country. You know, we're coming up on a, an election. I can see some people taking this passage and be like, look how leaders are brought low. Uh, and there's definitely an element to that. That's definitely a sermon that could be preached. But I want to encourage you to instead look at our own hearts, look at our own relationship with God, look at our own pride, our own hubris, and see what this passage might mean for us today. And so uh, the first uh, thing that, well, the, the main idea, the main point that we want to bring out today, and uh, it's, it's hard for me uh, to, to not preach about the last few verses in this chapter, but I'm gonna do my, I may have to mention them a little bit. Michael, I'm sorry if I'm jumping on, uh, on your toes a little bit for next week. But I'm going to try to leave that application a little bit to, uh, to, to what we're talking about today. So uh, the, the main point, the main idea is in kindness and mercy... Our sovereign God troubles our hearts to get our attention, exposes our sin, and calls us to righteousness. So in kindness and mercy, our sovereign God troubles our hearts to get our attention, exposes our sin, 
and calls us to righteousness. So the first thing I want us to see from this is in kindness and mercy, God troubles our hearts to get our attention. That's the first point that we're looking at today. So in kindness and mercy, God troubles our hearts to get our attention. So verse, verse four, we see uh, Nebuchadnezzar at ease in his palace, at ease in his palace. Things are going really well. And the truth is, this is one of the most dangerous places spiritually that we can possibly be. Things are going really well for us. We're not having a lot of uh, poor health. We're not having money trouble. Uh, we can pretty much get what we want and do what we want. That's a very dangerous place for Nebuchadnezzar to be. It's a very dangerous place for us to find ourselves in. Because spiritually, uh, that prosperity is going to lend itself to us not really wanting to depend on God. One of the reasons why our culture has so much hubris is because it is one of the wealthiest cultures we've ever had, where people are very prosperous and a lot of our needs are met and there's good affordable health care and there's you know all of these things that we could possibly want. And so it's very easy for us to, to not really depend on God that much, to feel like we're pretty much in control. But let one thing start to go wrong. Let us be confronted with a disease or or have a, you know, anxiety or, or struggle with uh, depression that will not lift or lose a loved one or, or any of these things that strike us and remind us that things aren't necessarily going to always be good. That ultimately we will struggle. We will face illness. We will die. We're confronted with that mortality. And all of a sudden we start to say, well, where is God in this? It starts to turn our hearts back to him. And yet Nebuchadnezzar finds himself in this prosperity with things going so well, and it lends itself to this hubris that he, uh, that he has. But God's going to wake him up in verse 5 with a terrifying dream, a terrifying vision. It's a mercy and a blessing when God wakes us up. When God brings about, whether it's through a brother or sister speaking truth to us, whether it's through something that we just happen to see or something that we hear, whether it's through a sermon, whether it's through something that someone accidentally does or said, but God just uses that to speak truth to us and wake us up to the deeper reality in life. For so many of us, we just need to be woken up. We're floating through life just because things are pretty good and we're pretty content and we can distract ourselves with a lot of stuff that's going on, we need that wake-up call. And even something that could be seen as, as horrible, a lot of times it's going to be a wake-up call to us to open us up to the things of God, to open us up to the spiritual reality that's deeper than what we see. And notice that, again, in verse 6, we're going to see him call in these all the worldly wisdom that he has. He calls in these court magicians and these people. So again, the backdrop for this, like many times throughout Scripture, is going to be the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God at play in the backdrop. And again, as a last resort, we're going to see in verse 8, he's going to turn to, uh, turn to God. Well, you know, where's Daniel? Daniel was able to kind of interpret this dream in the past. I'm not going to go to him first, but when all else fails, I might turn to him. And so he turns to Daniel, and we're going to see a very different relationship between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel than we saw before. They definitely have more familiarity now, maybe more concern for one another in this relationship that they have here. When this, is this last resort, he's going to turn to him. But how often is this our pattern as well? How often is it us that as a very last resort 
we turn to God. I look back in my life and I see time after time, it takes something horrible to turn me to God. If I can make sure that my needs are met, that my family is safe and secure, that my job is going well, if I can do those things on my own, then I do with no concern or regard for God at all. But let the, the bank account start to run kind of low. Let my health start to, to, to falter. Let a loved one start to suffer. And suddenly I'm on my knees because there's nowhere else for me to turn. And so it's both a, a challenge to us to say, why is it that we turn to God last? And it's also uh, a, shows us the blessing of the reality that God is still there and he still answers those prayers, even in the midst of the, that despair. And even when we haven't been seeking him, he is still there. He is still present. He's still there to meet us in the midst of that. And so from verses 10 through 17, we're going to see this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, this uh, tree. And there's some, some parallels to other passages of Scripture. Uh, you can see, hopefully, some, some direct parallels to, uh, to, to the Tower of Babel. Um, you know, we're talking about a, a very similar geographic location here, a similar people group, the Babylonians, um, kind of coming out of that uh, culture. And you should see some really strong parallels to that. But there's also a very similar passage over in Ezekiel chapter 31. You can turn there if you want. There's a prophecy um, that Ezekiel is going to give. And in Ezekiel chapter 31, we see in verse 3, Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and a towering height, the top among, its top among the clouds, the waters nourished it. The deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its bows were large, its branches long, from abundant water in its shoots. All the birds of the heavens made their nest in its bows and its branches. All the beasts of the field gave birth to their young. And under its shadow lived all the great nations. It was beautiful in its greatness, in the length of its branches, for its roots went down to abundant waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it, nor the fir trees equal to its boughs. Neither were the plain trees like its branches. No tree in the garden of God made equal in beauty. I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches, and all the trees of Eden envied it, that were in the garden of God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it is towered high and set its top amongst the clouds and its heart was proud of its height, I will give it into the hands of a mighty one of the nations and he will surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. And so we see again a very parallel thing. This tree is a symbol for a nation growing up and rivaling God. And, and, and the way that it rivals God is that people start to look to this kingdom as God. People start to look to it for their provision. They start to look to the, the king of this kingdom as their provision. And that's exactly the way that they're looking to Nebuchadnezzar. And it's the way that he sees himself as this one who's sheltering his people, the one who's providing for his people. And again, the hubris is that he's not, no longer looking to God, but instead seeing himself as the God who's fulfilling this in his people. So how does this translate to you and I? We're not the president of the United States. We're not 
the leader of a mighty empire. But every one of us crafts sort of this own, our own kingdom for ourselves. We, we uh, want to be like Nebuchadnezzar, at ease in our palace. Our palace may not be quite as grand as that of the king of Assyria, unless you're Michael Powell, but uh, all of us can't afford that. Uh, but, but we have this place, this thing that we create for ourselves that we, that we, ha- we, we want to, to find, to be at ease in this world that we're trying to craft for ourselves. And we start to feel at times like, I can do this. I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty content. Everything's pretty, pretty nice. And we look to ourselves or the people who depend on us look to us as sort of the source of that strength or the source of that salvation. It's very easy for us to forget about God. It's very easy for us to rely on the strength of this, this uh, illusion that we've created. And so we see in verse 17 kind of the key of a lot of what's about to happen. We see in in chapter 4, verse 17, it says, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know, to the end that the living may know, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowest of men. So much of the action that happens in the story is driven so that people will know the most high rules. So a lot of the things that happen in Nebuchadnezzar's life and in this kingdom are so that people will know God, that people will know that they depend on him for their life and for their salvation. Psalm 10.4 says, In his pride, the wicked man does not seek God. In all his, ha- his thoughts, there is no room for God. In this little palace that we create for ourselves, so often there's no room for God in the midst of that. There's no understanding that ultimately he is our Lord. He is our king. Instead of finding our ease in him, we find our ease in these little palaces that we create for ourselves that cannot provide that peace and that rest that our soul is looking for, when it can only find rest and peace in him. We can have this external kind of momentary peace, but we can't have this lasting, deep, and eternal peace apart from God in a place where there is no room for him. I love what C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something above you. It's a challenge for us as well, because how often are our thoughts and our actions consumed with things right here? We just don't have room for God in our vision and in our hearts. Augustine, on the constructive side, said, if you plan to build a tall house of virtue, you must first lay deep foundations of humility. So on the opposite side, if if those of us who are believers in Jesus are are striving to build our lives on him, we have to build those deep foundations of humility first and foremost. The second thing that I want us to see uh, in this passage today is that in kindness and mercy, God exposes our sin and calls us to righteousness. In kindness and mercy, God exposes our sin and calls us to righteousness. Now, this is one of the hardest truths 
to take deeply into our hearts as believers in Christ is the fact that God in kindness and mercy exposes our sin. And yet it's one of the best things that could possibly happen to us is for our sin to be exposed. And yet it's probably the thing that for many of us we fear more than anything else in the world. I was thinking about this passage and I was thinking about what is the difference uh, spiritually between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar? Okay, because we see at different times Nebuchadnezzar sort of acknowledging God. But there's a, a stark difference in the way that Daniel relates to God and the way that Nebuchadnezzar relates to God. There's a stark difference in the way that they understand these things. What's going on in Daniel's soul? What's going on in Nebuchadnezzar's soul while these activities are taking place? We can kind of see it from the outside. We can see their actions coming forth. But what's going on in their hearts? How is it that Daniel, we see, so some of his responses that we see from him, we see this, this terror, this fear kind of response whenever Nebuchadnezzar reveals this dream. And so out of that, we see a respect and an awe for God. We see fear for this other person who we said he's kind of in a relationship with now that Nebuchadnezzar is going to show some concern back towards Daniel. He's going to say, don't, don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. Uh, and we see Daniel having the same kind of fear for, for him. So we see this God focus and others focus in Daniel that's not really evident in Nebuchadnezzar. We see that Daniel loves God. This humility and fear for God comes out of that love that he has for God. It comes out of that knowledge of who God is. He, he isn't afraid that God is, is going to cast him off and despise him. He's, he's got this this loving kind of fear for God about what's going to happen if Nebuchadnezzar doesn't repent and acknowledge God and what that's going to mean for the people of God in this community. So he has this healthy fear for the justice of God that comes out of this knowledge of God that he has, this deep knowing of who God is. And yet in Nebuchadnezzar, we see a very surface level knowledge of God, this turning to God at the last second as a last resort this sort of acknowledging God after years of punishment kind of respect for God. But we don't really necessarily see this translating deep into who Nebuchadnezzar is. We don't see him relating to God in the same way that Daniel is relating to God. And so I want us to take a second and just ask ourselves when we're hearing this story or when we're relating to God throughout our week, what's going on in our hearts and in our souls? When we hear about this justice of God, this, this falls down on, on Nebuchadnezzar, what does it stir up inside of us? When we hear about the things that Daniel endures, even as a faithful servant of God, what does that stir up inside of us? When we experience God throughout our week, whether it's um, as we're walking through life and experience daily struggles or, or maybe tough situations that we're going through or maybe something doesn't go our way or something doesn't happen or just the regular pressures of life, positive, negative, whatever it may come up, how is it that we relate to God in those moments and in those ways? Is it the surface level like Nebuchadnezzar where there's this sort of outward acknowledgement of God at times or is, this, is it this deep, knowing of God that we see exhibited in someone like Daniel. 
this loving respect and fear for God that Daniel has. And so that's what I want us to think about as we're sort of walking through these next couple of verses. So we see a proper and different response to God in Daniel. It says in verse 19 that Daniel is afraid and terrified. He's described this way when he's confronted with God several times throughout this book. This sort of healthy fear for, for who God is, this respect for who, uh, who God is. And in verse 19 and 20, um, interestingly, I think you see a bit of Nebuchadnezzar's kind of humanity slip through as we talked about that relationship that he, he has and this even concern that, that Nebuchadnezzar has for, for Daniel and for Daniel's fear. And yet we also see in this passage again that hubris come out because he says, don't be that. I mean, why are you that scared of the dream? You know who I am? I'm Nebuchadnezzar. It's going to be fine. Like, it's, it's going to be okay. Um, he doesn't get this fear that Daniel has, this respect that he has, even in the midst of him coming and interpreting this dream for him. One of the things that's, I think, so interesting about this passage that takes us then into the, to the next week is, is God doesn't just immediately drop this judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. He actually says, you got like 12 months to repent and turn from your sin and turn back to God and honor him. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, ah, I'm good. So we have this dream. We have this clear interpretation of this dream, this wisdom that he obviously respects that he hears from Daniel, and yet there's still no acknowledgement of God, no fear of God before him. The, the interpretation is that the Nebuchadnezzar is the tree. He's about to be, and this is his kingdom. He's about to be chopped down. He's going to live like an animal for seven years. And then he's eventually, God's going to preserve this little stump of his kingdom that he's going to get back after this is all done. And it's all kind of supposed to teach this valuable lesson that, again, we see in verse 25. So for verse 25, he says that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Paralleling back exactly to what we read over in verse 17, the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. We see this phrase repeated a couple of times in this chapter to highlight the point that this is what Nebuchadnezzar doesn't recognize and doesn't realize, that God has given him his kingdom, and he can just as easily make him into a cow who's out there eating grass like a crazy person and give it to somebody else. Like, you're not that special is one of the things he's trying to get across to him. Like, God is the one who gives these things, and he can just as easily take these things away. God is, is gracious and merciful, Nebuchadnezzar shows him. God is giving you this time. How is, how is he gracious and merciful to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, there's times when you can just experience the judgment and wrath of God that you deserve without this kind of clear and direct warning that God gives him what a, what a blessing this is for it to be exposed, for him to be shown the sin and the error of his ways and to have an opportunity to repent and acknowledge that. I, I heard uh, somebody say once that the best thing that could ever happen for you is if your sin were just exposed on the five o'clock news. If you're just sitting there, and I know people probably don't necessarily watch the five o'clock news anymore, so that maybe isn't like needs to be updated 
uh, metaphor. Maybe it's uh, just somebody hacks your social media and posts every horrible thing you've ever done and sends it to all your friends and family. Maybe that's the best thing that could happen in like an updated metaphor. But that, again, would probably be like the worst nightmare of, of most of us sitting here. I know that would terrify me if every single person in my life knows the worst thoughts and the worst things that I've ever done. But once the dust settles down on that a little bit, the blessing in that would be now you can just, now you're free. You wouldn't be, you wouldn't be burdened by this unbearable guilt of trying to constantly put this mask on in front of everybody else anymore. And maybe for once you could finally deal with the stuff that's going on in your heart that you're trying to keep from everyone else. And so this is the incredible opportunity that Nebuchadnezzar has. The thing that I would challenge you with is, is that if that's the case you find yourself in, then find someone to expose those things to. And that may be the most painful thing that you ever do, but it'll also, I guarantee you, be the very best thing that ever happens to you. I can think back over my life and just in humility tell you there's been several times where there's some very deep things I didn't really want people to know. God kind of forced those things to the surface and it was the very best thing that ever happened to me. I'm not saying that it wasn't the hardest thing as well, but it's the best thing that could possibly ever happen. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for some of those things happening in my life. And so I wanna encourage you and challenge you and it takes an incredible amount of strength to be able to do something like that. Hopefully we don't come to the point where God has to just do it for us, but hopefully we can go to someone in trust and in a loving relationship and, and share those things and ask someone to help us. You have pastors and people at this church who are, who are open to helping you walk through that. You have a great resource. I feel like Keith Keller, who, who was reading this passage up here, and was like, I will talk with him, and I feel like he knows the, the deep, dark secrets of my soul just in the five-minute conversation with him at times. But he's, I feel like this is what he spends a lot of his time doing is just kind of walking through some of this stuff with people. You have resources at your disposal here. Don't hear this and, like Nebuchadnezzar, leave and say, I've heard this warning. God is speaking to my heart that I need to repent of this sin or, or turn from this thing and then just walk away and wait for the consequences of it, because they will come. And so you see the blessing, the hearing this truth from God's word is, and take that as an opportunity to, to turn to him in repentance, to acknowledge that sin, to acknowledge our weakness, and, and to, to repent and turn to him. See that as an incredible opportunity to do that. Don't waste that opportunity that he's giving you. Proverbs 16, 5 says, Everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. It's a stark and difficult reality, but Scripture is clear because God is a just God. And this is why that fear, loving, respectful fear comes from Daniel, is that he sees and knows Nebuchadnezzar, and he knows God, and he knows that there's going to be a clash there as God is a just God. And he's going to bring Nebuchadnezzar love. Another quote um, that I read, a, a commentator said, nothing will make us so tender to the faults of others as by self-examination thoroughly to know our own faults. And that's the other thing I want to challenge you is one of the best things that can happen to you by having these things exposed and working through these things is that how, that's how God prepares you to then walk with others. 
That's how God builds up his church. Our church is not supposed to be a place where we all come and just have these nice little masks on in front of each other and pretend like everything is fine. It's supposed to be a place where we come and actually deal with the sin that we all acknowledge we have. Every single one of us believes, because Scripture clearly teaches that we're sinful people who who struggle and, and who have problems, and yet we know that the answer is the gospel, and yet far too often we're not connecting those things in this community. And yet those are the exact times where we're going to grow, we're going to feel the grace and mercy of God the most, and we're going to feel love for one another more than we ever have before is when we expose those things and are honest with one another. And that's how God's going to prepare us then to walk with others in that as well. And this is consistent with God's plan throughout Scripture. What we see in in Nebuchadnezzar is we see that God is starting to extend the truth about him to the ends of the earth. In the very beginning, uh, in the garden, it it, it was never God's plan for just a few people to know and acknowledge God. We see from the beginning this, this current running throughout of God winning a people for all peoples for his glory and worship. We see the fulfillment of that in the book of Revelation. Even in uh, Psalm 72, uh, verse 10, it says, May the kings of Tarshish and the coastline render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and needy and saves their lives from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. So we see him say from, from there, it's not, these are kings that he's talking about who are not Jewish kings. They're kings from other parts of the world. And he says, they're going to fall on their face before God because God wants to save people. He wants to save needy people who don't even know now that they need him. And the ripple effects of that are going to go throughout the world. And we see that happening in Daniel. And then later in the book of uh, of Mark, we're going to see God's kingdom begin to spread through the work and ministry of Jesus. And then in Acts, we're going to see that start to go to the ends of the earth. And ultimately, we're living in this time just before, right now, we're living in this time before Revelation, where God is continuing that work around the world of bringing people the knowledge about himself, and then ultimately, all people are going to bow down and worship him in the end. Don't forget the good news of the gospel. Don't forget the truth that's revealed through Jesus, that ultimately the proud are going to be brought low, but mercy is going to be given. And we see that even in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, that someone who doesn't deserve God's mercy is showered with mercy. He's humble and he's brought mercy. As a a way of application for us today, I want us to to ask ourselves, am I prideful? Am I prideful? I got some questions that I put up on the screen for us to just walk through for just a second. For us to ask ourselves, because sometimes it's, it's really easy for us to see pride in others, but it can be very difficult for us to see pride in our own hearts, in ourselves. There's nothing magical about these uh, questions. They're just kind of random a little bit, but they're supposed to just help us to think and step outside of ourselves for a minute. So first of all, do I genuinely listen to and learn from the people I encounter in my daily life? Am Am I listening to other people? Am I hearing what they say? Am I hearing their stories? Am I willing to be taught by others? 
not just people you've identified on the internet that you respect, but actual people who know you in the real world? Are you willing to listen to and respect what they say and the truth that they can bring to your life? Second, do I demand that my needs are met by others or do I joyfully serve others expecting nothing in return? That one is a punch to the gut for me right there, to be totally honest with you. Uh, I feel like in that little kingdom that I build for myself, my little palace where I'm at ease, I love for people to do things for me, and I don't really want to serve other people um, with expecting nothing in return. Something that's kind of deeply convicting for me. Third, when I struggle with fear, sadness, or anxiety, or my life is stressful, frantic, or painful, do I I refuse to blame others or God? When I struggle with that fear, the sadness, the anxiety that's bound to come, my life becomes stressful or frantic or painful, am I blaming others? Am I blaming God? That's a symptom of pride. Fourth, in my heart, not just externally, do I recognize my utter dependence on God? I think we can see in Nebuchadnezzar somebody who at times externally is acknowledging God, is acknowledging the Most High. But in Daniel, we see someone who internally recognizes his utter dependence on God. And I think if all of us are honest, it's very, that's a That is a level of spiritual growth that few people have attained. There have definitely been times in my life where God has brought me low and reminded me of my dependence on him. But to walk in that knowledge daily is a level that we probably won't be able to arrive at uh, and definitely won't apart from the spirit of God in our hearts and our lives. And do I genuinely believe that pride is an issue for me? Because if I'm sitting here just saying, well, I'm glad some people are listening to this because some people definitely need to hear it, then I'm probably the one who needs to hear it. All right, so that's, that's a, it should, should be something that every one of us looks to. Because again, looking throughout the course of Scripture from the Garden of Eden, the sin is pride. You know, did, did God really say that? Is God really going to do this to you? You can be like God, you know, all the way through. And, and this is really the source of so much of our Sin and rebellion against him is just not acknowledging him in the rightful place in our lives. Not honoring him. Not having that fear of that, that Daniel has for him, but that love that Daniel has for him. And not being rooted in our hearts, but more that external acknowledgement. So, so the call to Nebuchadnezzar is a call to us to repent, to humble ourselves before God, to turn from evil and do good. And we see him calling Nebuchadnezzar to do good in practical and real ways in the world, to end oppression, to end suffering, to to be transformed by the love that God has for him and to see that transform his life and and bleed into other people. The bad news is that I, I can't do this. I cannot, on my own, live up to this kind of standard. I can't try hard enough to be Daniel. I can't try hard enough to to do perfectly uh, to kill all of this pride in me. 
It's impossible for me to do on my own, but that's why the gospel is such good news for us. The fact that Jesus was the embodiment of this humility, who did not, even though he was God, did not consider something to be grasped, but instead humbled himself and made himself low and suffered and died on the cross so that we could be made righteous with God in our pride, that he could kill that pride in us so that we could walk in humility with God in Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And big picture, how can we, like Daniel, notice what God is doing in the world and then speak truth and love to other people? There are other people in this church, there are people in your life who need to hear the good news about Jesus, who need to, to be told in love you know, that what they're doing is sin or called out for their pride. How can we speak truth and love to others? But ultimately, the good news for us today is, is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fact that he died on the cross uh, for our sins so that as imperfect as we are, we don't have to sit here today and feel no hope because there's hope and mercy in Jesus. Remember, even someone like Nebuchadnezzar, he's calling him to repentance. He's calling him to honor and acknowledge God. But the, tr the truth is we don't know uh, we don't know the time. He hasn't laid it out for us like he has with Nebuchadnezzar. Here's 12 months. So I urge you, don't put this off. Don't wait to, to deal with your sin, to repent of that, and to turn to God. The, the illusion of this palace where we're at our ease is not real. It's what, what Jeremiah calls a, a fountain that cannot hold water. And we need to turn to the living fountain, the fountain of living water. We need to turn to Jesus, who is that source of peace and contentment in our heart, not just for this life, not just for a moment, but eternally. We need to ask ourselves what's happening in our hearts and in our souls. Is this just an external kind of acknowledgement of God, or do I depend on him in my heart every single day? Every single week at, at South Point, we have this reminder of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we, we cast ourselves on his mercy in this outward symbol of communion, where we take this this piece of bread that symbolizes the body of Christ broken for us. And we dip it into this juice that symbolizes the blood of Christ that's poured out for us. And we do this because he told us this is the reminder of the gospel, this reminder that we're utterly dependent on him. It's this outward representation of this inward dependence that we have on Jesus. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, I want to encourage you at this time, we're going to take a moment and there's some, some stations around the sanctuary where we're going to line up and we're going to show this uh, dependence that we have on God and this outward representation. If you're not a believer, uh, then I would encourage you to reflect. Take a moment to, to reflect on this, um, to, to think about these truths. Maybe speak to a pastor, uh, speak to someone in your life who can talk to you about the truth about Jesus. Uh, but if, if you're a believer, I want to encourage you at this time to, to take part in this uh, outward representation of this inward dependence that we have on Jesus. And so we're going to go into that time right now.